I know as a memoirist that writing chronologically is the kiss of death. It's so boring because you know it's coming. But why did I? I mean, partly it was aging. I was interested in just showing the process of my life over, over the whole arc of it from when I was born until when I finished writing the book. But I didn't necessarily have to do that in chronological order. You know, I guess I was also interested in all these other things that were happening culturally in the background, like all these various fitness trends I was getting caught up in, political administrations and the weird arc of history going on through all of this stuff. I, I mean, I'm just interested in time. In my other memoirs, I've written in a very circular or even, I don't know, involute kind of way. But in this book, I wanted to just go in order. It was It's funny because I actually ended up not writing it in order at all. I was constantly jumping around from one part of the book to the other. But in the end, the story is chronological. It's part of the reason why you hadn't taken that approach before, that you were pushing back against that more traditional or more obvious way of telling a story? Not consciously. I just knew that that story wasn't interesting. For many years, I wrote a comic strip that just you know happened in real time, basically. But unlike other comic strips, I my characters aged, you know, so I've always been interested in that progression of time as an idea. But then I, I started working on this family memoir, Fun Home, and I knew that it wasn't the story so much that interested me. It wasn't just saying what happened. It was really just all my thoughts and associations and hopefully some new revelation about what that all meant that I would find in writing the story in a more um, free associated kind of way and not just this happened and then this happened and then this happened. I mean, obviously you're, you're finding that you're able to revisit, if not necessarily the same stories, then the same period of time and rediscover things that you hadn't before. I mean, that, that strikes me as one of the great difficulties of what you've done with this book coming after the other two in that you're essentially kind of mining the same area, but you're coming up <laughs> with new, but you're coming up with new, new angles and new takes and, and things that for whatever reason didn't make it into previous books. Yes. Although I feel like I need to sort of get a new beat. I mean, I'm still interested in memoir. I still, I, I hope to write more memoirs, at least one more memoir. Um, but I think that's possible. I feel like it, each each of these books has a whole new different sort of trajectory or interest. There's so many things in the world and I can look at my own life through lots of different lenses. So I guess that's kind of what I'm doing and trying not to bore readers too much in the process by going over the same things. At this point in your life, what would you say is your relationship to aging and, and how has it changed over the decades? This book, was I was kind of thinking of it as I went along as being about aging and about me grappling with my mortality. But in a, I see now being on the other end of it that I was, I was still resisting those things quite a bit and that I really didn't, even though I said that's what it was about, I really didn't dig deeply into those things. And in fact, by the end of the book, I'm talking all about my new, my discovery of running again and how I'm running these long distances. Like, you know, I'm not gracefully aging. I'm trying to cling to some, you know, sense of myself still as superhumanly strong. 
So, but I feel like I, sorry, I'm trying to stop using that tick. I keep saying, I feel like it's like my new verbal tick. It is a little tinged with therapy, I think, right? Like (laughs) I feel rather than it is. Yeah. I'm just going to say it is. Damn it. I mean, it's your life and it's your story to tell. So you're able to frame it the way you want to, theoretically. That's a good point, Brian. But it took me a long time to realize that. I, You know, often when I'm working, I feel like I'm hoping that... I'm just... You did it again, Allison. Okay, get, ring a little bell. <laughs> I'll take a shot every time you say it. <laughs> okay. But, you know, I didn't really get... I mean, I, I did notice over the eight years that I worked on this book that I was slowly losing strength and speed, that I could no longer do a pull-up. This was like the hallmark for me, like my triumph in life was being able to hoist myself up uh, from a dead hang on a bar, and I could no longer do that. Over the course of the time I was working on this book, I lost the strength to do, to do that, which is chastening, I must say. I keep thinking maybe I can, maybe I can work out enough to get that back before I get... Absolutely too old. Is that something that when it's gone, it's gone? Is that no, no, I don't think so necessarily. Well, but I, but who knows? You know, at some point, it's pretty much all gone. You know, um, inevitably <laughs> there will be a point well, where yes. you're not able to do pull-ups. <laughs> so I wait. No, I almost said I feel again. I give you permission to say you feel, but I, I really do want to get it, get rid of that tick. So let's, I'll work on it. I mean, is it a tick? It's not like, uh, it's actual language. It's an admission that you don't know everything, which I think is fine as far as those go. Okay, well, let's just try to be more conscious of sure. it. But I guess what, what I'm getting at is I didn't even know what I was talking about, about aging and mortality until now. I feel like I have so much more perspective now at age 60 than I did during the time I was working on the book, like I feel like I still have more to say about about aging and mortality that I didn't even begin to touch in this book because we we can't see it. That's the thing about aging is that it's only revealed to you slowly as you walk into the horizon of your own life. Can you see death looming up more and more clearly? You know, as a child, you you have you might understand abstractly that you're going to die, but you really don't have any idea about it. I think until you turn forty, that's when that little you start to get, you know, you can see something on the horizon up there. Something with your name carved into it. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> that really hit. In terms of the understanding that you have now that you didn't when you started the book, that wasn't able to make it into the book, how has your perception changed? Well, all of a sudden, I have a lot of friends who are seriously ill. There, there was sickness and death happening, of course, all along, but I feel like that's really increased lately. And it makes me feel a little churlish and foolish for yammering on about mortality when I'm I'm not facing it in that kind of vivid way as, as, as my friends who are, you know, dealing with cancer are. So I feel like I've gotten a little more compassionate about talking about death. I guess that that's mainly it. You think that before you were willing to talk about death in spite of not having the same context that you have about it now. Uh, yes. It makes sense, but it's a little counterintuitive in that, you know, now you feel like you have more perspective, but because of that, you're more reticent to talk about it. I don't think I'm more reticent. I think I I, I just want to talk about it in a different way, like not quite so live <laughs> and fatuous. <laughs> one of the things that jumped out at me, and I think one of the things that really got to 
the heart of the matter in terms of aging in the book and how it relates to your lifelong fixation with fitness is you go to the doctor and you you have an issue with your shoulder. I mean, that's something that, you know, I've, I've dealt with that too. And it is that sort of thing of that old joke of, you know, just at some point, like maybe your shoulder is just not going to get better. Yeah. Yeah. And when I hit 50, I got frozen shoulder, which didn't get better for like two years. It took a, like a full two year cycle for this mysterious ailment to resolve but it just did eventually on its own. Sorry, that was sort of apropos of nothing. Yeah, I, I haven't had any serious health issues that I've faced. So, you know, I, I think about my when I was young and hanging out with the, all the lesbian feminists, I started learning about disability politics. I was taught that, I yes, I'm able-bodied, but only temporarily. So that's a, something I, I carry in my head a lot. Like, this, this is great now but it's there's no counting on it it's just temporary inevitably we're all gonna have some kind of disability or dependence unless you know unless like the roof caves in right now and i'm gone and you know i I assume to some degree that has an impact on the activities you're able to do i don't know how much of that how much of that is connected to you know you you mentioned the word trend before which is fitting and that all of a sudden you know like a patagonia opens up or whatever and you know you're able to sort of embrace this this outdoor lifestyle in a way you hadn't before how much of the sort of changing nature of the activities that you've done in your life and that you do in in the book are tied to the the trends to the decades just to the point you are in your life you know I think one of the biggest things in, in the order of the activities I've pursued was just the fact that I moved from the city to the country when I was 30. I moved to Vermont, rural Vermont, and I began biking and hiking and cross-country skiing. I had always cross-country skied, but I became much more serious about it when I got to Vermont. So those things weren't trends. They were in existence for a long time, but I just took them up in the 1990s because of where I was. Actually saying that, I feel like biking has gone through interesting stages. Like that was the time when mountain bikes were really becoming a thing. Like I'm so interested in the way gear evolves and bicycles really do like evolve almost like organic creatures. (laughs) I went off on a whole sidetrack of research about mountain biking and how it was these people in the 70s cyclists, like serious road cyclists in the San Francisco area in the 70s who loved to take their old heavy Schwinn clunkers, like from the 50s and 60s, these old rusty bikes, they'd take them up like the slopes of Mount Tam or, you know, the hills around Marin and coast back down on them. And gradually they started adding stuff to those old bikes, like knobby tires and gears and um, then making lighter frames for them until they really had this whole other animal, uh, the mountain bike, which now we sort of take for granted, but it didn't always exist. How large a part in your interest in all of these activities does the gear play? Are you a collector just generally? Is that is that scratching that itch where you pursue a new activity and you feel like you need to kind of go out and get everything related to it? I'm not a super collector and I'm not a an over-the-top gearhead. I do love this stuff, but I could spend a lot more money on it than I actually do. And I just don't. I mean, 
I love it, but I, I'm sort of a, you know, a minimalist. Like I don't want to have excess stuff. And I don't really, I wish I had a more rigorous class analysis of the, of my, of my love for gear, because I don't really pursue it very deeply. And I know it's problematic, you know, the, the way that new stuff keeps getting introduced. So you have to buy it, you know, but so often it seems quite harmless. Like the stuff, the, the innovations in gear are just usually really practical and fun. And I don't mind laying out money for, you know, something that's really an improvement. Class analysis is a really interesting way of putting it, you know, especially given there's a collecting aspect of things, but also just the fitness aspect of things that we tend to think of, you know, like we tend to group people who do a lot of activities in in a certain like part of the population. I mean, it is such a it's kind of a culturally defining thing. It it is. the, The truth is that you don't need a lot of money to be fit. You don't need to have all this shit. It's fun for me. Often it'll kind of jumpstart me if I've if I've lost interest in something or I'm not, I'm just not getting out there, getting a new thing is a way to kind of latch back on. So that feels to me like that's worth some money. In our culture, I think that fitness is very class. It breaks down along class lines, you know, like the poorer you are, the less likely you are to be, you know, aerobically healthy, the less likely you are to live near a park or, you know, have the time or freedom to, Go for a walk or run. And the food you have access to. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't get into that stuff. I was already doing a lot, but I, I'm aware of that. And I, I I worry about just, you know, that I'm writing this elitist book for wealthy white retirees. I hope that's not how it comes across. And you alluded to this a little bit before when it came to, to the, the mountain biking. And it sounds like this is sort of the, the case with this aspect of the discussion, too, that maybe you have a tendency when you're writing these books to really go down rabbit holes. And how much of a part does that play in the amount of time it takes to from beginning to end? It's I think this book took about eight years. And how much of your tendency to sort of go and research every aspect of things really ends up dragging your heels that is definitely a part of it it's i have a lot of reasons that i tell myself why this book took so long partly my life got really busy for a while my mother died the musical based on my book fun home opened on broadway it was very distracting i had a lot of things that is distracting a broadway <laughs> opening based on your book that's ridiculous i'm sorry i don't mean to like it was wonderful it did take me away from my work i was just traveling a lot and never able to really settle my mind down and also as i worked on this book and saw saw that it was taking this shape of chapters equaling decades i couldn't Really, if I finished the final sixth chapter of the book before I turned 60, which was last fall, it wouldn't, you know, it would be unbalanced. I wouldn't have really lived out that full period of my life. So in a way, I just needed to live through my 50s before I finished this book. You know, it took a long time. And a lot of that time was indeed spent going down rabbit holes and just allowing myself to read what I wanted, research what I wanted. And that's such a wonderful part of working on a book. And I let myself do that. I did it with Fun Home. I did it with my next memoir, Are You My Mother? And in all of these projects, it has it's only been through that free-ranging, almost kind of play in my research that I've 
found the thing that helps me give the book a shape. And they all sort of come late in my process. With, with Fun Home, it was finally deciding to read all the books that my father had loved as a way to get some insight into him. And those books then sort of gave a, came back into what I was writing and gave it a shape. In the book about my mother, I embarked on this like multi-year study, informal study of psychoanalysis, starting with Freud and then delving into the work of Donald Winnicott. I didn't know anything about that stuff. So I had to learn, you know, vocabulary and concepts and it was fun, but took a long time. And so with this book, it was reading all these biographies of these various writers of Kerouac and Emerson and Margaret Fuller and Samuel Taylor Coleridge and Dorothy Wordsworth. And it was so fun. I, 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 I'm really into biographies now. I just love getting a sense of the arc of a person's full life and learning what gave it meaning and shape. And I think in a way that's because I'm trying to write my own biography. Kerouac especially is an interesting example. I think you've discussed this before that really I was a 15 year old boy once who read (laughs) every Kerouac book in in junior high school, which Uh I don't think is a unique experience, but it sounds like for you, Dharma Bums is really the kind of the one of his books that, that, really connected. Kerouac is not a very good example of somebody who aged gracefully. Absolutely not. (laughs) And over the years, I've watched a lot of the sort of like late period William Buckley conversations where he's just a, just a total piece of garbage. Do you feel like you got a better insight into what happened there? I do. I feel like I, I mean, honestly, I, I haven't read a lot of his other work besides the Dharma bones. I just feel impatient. (laughs) And as you know, as a feminist, I, I, I'm probably more impatient than you you would have been at age 15, and just the way he treats the female characters in his stories. But I did start to learn a lot more about him. Like he, you know, he had this tragic family loss. His his adulated older brother died when Jack was four, and I think the older brother was like six or seven, maybe a little older. But you know, that just really scarred the family traumatized his mother and him. And I think it's part of why Jack was so enmeshed with his mother. You know, he just didn't want to separate from her and she didn't want to separate from him. And they were just like this crazy dysfunctional unit together. I mean, he was still living with her in his forties. So that's one thing. And also, you know, recently as I actually was finishing the book. So it was too late to incorporate this. I read a, something, I think it was in the New Yorker, an article about someone who was speculating that part of Kerouac's antisocial behavior was really due to brain injury, traumatic brain injuries that he might've sustained from football injuries in his youth. He played a lot of football in high school and college. And also a, a, an auto accident that he had that he just never got treated for. So all these symptoms of like aggressiveness and heavy drinking, like those are all compatible with TBIs. So I don't know what that, (laughs) does that change anything? I don't know. Do you feel though that, you know, being sort of a match in biographies of people that you wouldn't necessarily find sympathetic has made you more empathetic to really kind of get to the bottom of their stories? I hadn't thought of that, but yeah, I mean, certainly I, yeah, I didn't go Actually, I I resisted reading a biography of Kerouac because I was just feeling fed up with him. Do I really want to spend my time reading about this guy's fuck-ups? 
but that was the side effect of it was coming out with some more understanding and compassion for him. Cartoonists, especially, and this is just given, especially if you both write and draw something, the amount of time it, it takes for just about everybody to make a book. And since you dropped some heavy mortality on me before, it's my, my, my turn okay. to return the favor. <laughs> but I found that cartoonists at a certain point in their career start quantifying the amount of time they have left based on the number of books they can produce. Is that something that has factored into your work? Just sort of knowing that, you know, that these take eight years. Yeah. You've only got a certain number left. No, that is absolutely in the forefront of my mind. I'm very conscious of that. And Perhaps more so than, you know, someone who is just a writer, because there's not that same kind of physical work that goes into it. It's, it's physically hard work, you know, it's, it's a kind of labor. I mean, it's not like going down in the coal mines, but you're using your body for long periods of time. My eyesight, you know, a, a while ago, I had to start wearing reading glasses to draw. And I'm, that's all always changing. I have to get like closer and closer to the page and bending over more and more. So yeah, I, I, I maybe have one more book in me, I hope, but beyond that, I don't know. Maybe I'll have to start like drawing <laughs> really big books, you know, those um, large print books. I'll, I'll make like big broadsides that I can <laughs> paint with a brush. Before you discuss the almost the process of almost kind of circling around the theme, or at least like teasing out the theme of the book, has that evolved? Has that streamlined over the years? No, I I never know what the hell I'm doing. That that part of the process for me is always a mystery. I don't know how I do it. I don't, you know, every every book I feel like I'm starting fresh. I have, I do have certain methods and tools that I use, but I feel like I forget how to do them from one project to the next. But that's part of the fun, too, figuring out how to do something that is essentially impossible. <laughs> I, I like to come up with a project that is sort of like really difficult to imagine how I'm ever going to pull it off, because otherwise, why bother? And if I knew what I was doing going in, like if I had an, a clear agenda going in, there's that too would mean there was no real point to doing it. I go in to learn something, discover something, solve something. In this specific instance, what was the impossible task? I guess I was doing several things. One was trying to face my mortality. One was trying to push myself to be more spontaneous in my own creative process. Kerouac was a great guide for that. He was, you know, so much about spontaneity. But that turned into some drawing exercises. Like in the book, you'll see there's, most of the book is just drawn conventionally with pen and ink and color, but there are certain pages and spreads where it's just black and white. And I haven't drawn with a pen at all, but with a brush, sort of like Asian brush drawing with just black and white ink. Well, black ink watered down. So that was definitely a way I was pushing myself out of my comfort zone and trying to just access a kind of ease and flow that I remember from childhood and drawing, but I, that I've lost over the years in a more abstract or, or a more, um, not necessarily abstract, but a more metaphysical sense. I wanted to understand more about this idea of transcendence of somehow getting beyond my everyday self, my my everyday monkey mind, 
as the Buddhists call it. I was researching those things, reading books about those things, and also trying to have an experience of, of those things myself. Part of the research process, it wasn't just the source material, but it was actually researching a new method or a new way of creating. Yeah, that was my, my hope, is that I'd somehow repair myself or jumpstart myself into this next phase of life. Did you need jumpstarting? I did. You know, there were years in my 50s when I didn't draw at all. I feel very sheepish admitting this as a cartoonist. I should have an active and regular drawing practice. And I hopefully I do now. I think I will try not to let that happen again. Try not to let things get to that sad state of affairs. But, you know... Drawing is kind of like being a musician or a surgeon. Like there is a lot of manual dexterity involved. And if you stop doing it, you you lose that. So it took me quite a while to get ramped up to do this book. And it's interesting too to see how my drawing is changing as I get older. I was just looking back at some of the drawings for Are You My Mother, which I published in 2012. And I feel like they're, they're so much more detailed. Like they're, they're kind of sharper and have finer details in them. And I think it's precisely because I could see better then. I wasn't wearing close-up glasses to draw. So I'm already losing uh, a certain amount of visual acuity. What's your sense of what happened over the past decade that led you to stop for a while? Well, it was those things I was saying, like just being very busy dealing with stuff that came up in life, like my mother dying and just having a lot of demands on my time, but also more psychologically, I think I love drawing more than anything. It's my favorite part, certainly of doing a graphic book. I like the writing. That's fun too. But the real magic of it for me is when it's all coming together and I'm really in the thick of the drawing. I think that there's some way that I, well, I don't like doing bad drawings. So that when you don't draw, you know that Next time you sit down to draw, it's going to be bad. So I'm less likely to do it. And then it gets into this bad, you know, negative loop and you don't do it and you get, and you know, you'll be worse next time. So that was going on. That's a lot of things. In the past, when you've dealt with grief or major life changes, how much has drawing been an outlet or a source of catharsis for what you're dealing with in the immediate term. You know, I've never actually thought about the drawing itself as catharsis. I certainly think of the writing that way. Well, I guess the drawing too. I mean, certainly in these memoirs about my parents, when I was having to draw my parents repeatedly, there was something, you know, I was just constantly like confronting them and who they were, you know, drawing their faces and having this intimate contact with them was kind of cathartic, like kind of getting them out of my system. But I haven't thought about the process of drawing as a kind of catharsis. I'll have to, I'll have to mull over that one. I know that we're similar from the standpoint of both being workaholics and, you know, and, and part of that I think is you invariably end up tying your identity to what you do to your career, which, you know, for better or for worse. And, and I don't think that necessarily having your identity tied to being an artist in your case, or, or, you know, being primarily a writer in my case is necessarily a bad thing. But when you put that on hiatus and when, you know, drawing for an extended period isn't part of your life, does that have a 
profound change on your identity? You know, I certainly went into a kind of a slump. I wouldn't say a depression because I've been depressed and that's such a really particular and awful feeling. But I was really, I felt like I'd lost my mojo. That's why I actually kept saying to myself, lost my mojo, like Austin Powers. Yeah, that was real. And I, I didn't quite, I didn't think to myself, well, I need to draw to get my mojo back. I was like, I can't draw. I've lost my mojo. Like it's a chicken and the egg kind of thing. But eventually I just had to start drawing. And I think that really helped very, very much. The flip side of that, and and, and you do detail this at the end of the book, is it sounds like, you know, over the past year, while <laughs> the, the world was going to hell, that you were able to, if not process it, at least kind of navigate through it because you had drawing. It sounds like drawing and working with your wife were yeah. a source of consistency, at least throughout. Yeah. Yeah, you're right, Brian. What a crazy year that was. But I, I felt like really chill. I felt like I just had this deep equanimity in spite of all the craziness in the news, in spite of this raging pandemic, which normally I probably would have been a lot more anxious about. But yeah, I was working with my partner, Holly, on this book. I was inking. She was doing the color. We were just in a groove, working these long days, drawing. And I felt happy. I'm always, I feel anxious when I say that sentence. (laughs) You feel guilty almost. Yes. Yeah, I did feel guilty. And also, I'm always worried about saying I feel happy because then it might stop. You don't want to jinx it. But yeah, a lot of that was due to just being in that, heightened focus of the of the drawing this really soothing and very absorbing activity you know just someone was telling me recently that flow state happens when you're making constant little micro decisions in an activity which is exactly what you're doing when you're drawing and your brain is just absorbed with that in a way that allows you to you know sort of float free above it in this wonderful way. It's interesting to hear you discuss spontaneity in the context of, of making comics because, you know, certainly there are there are art forms that absolutely lend themselves to spontaneity. You know, we were talking about making music before, like jazz, obviously. It's a very spontaneous art form. Kerouac, as you said, was at least trying to push through into that <laughs> Benjadrine and his long, his scrolls of paper. Comics are very methodical, right? I mean, isn't isn't there a certain aspect of making a comic, especially a very long form comic that is almost antithetical to spontaneity? Yes. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I don't like looking at work that has not been labored over. That's not very, very dark with ink, you know, that just hasn't had a lot of care put into it. Except for maybe John Porcelino, whose work is so just pure and pristine and simple. But mostly I like a, I like a heavily worked <laughs> page. But that doesn't necessarily mean you can't be spontaneous in some way. Looking at R. Crumb's work, like, I mean, he's his own whole category, but <laughs> he's, he's just drawing that stuff out of his freaking head. I have to do 10 pencil sketches. I would love to just be less reliant on on sketching and just allow for that for the slightly looser style that would result. I feel like I always want to move towards something just a little looser, not sloppy, not thoughtless, but 
looser. It's incredibly hard to experiment with longboard because if you're trying to be consistent with your style and you do that at the beginning of the book, you kind of have to keep that up for the rest of it. I mean, in any long term, long form project, you you're trying just changes over the course of it. But you try, you still try to maintain some kind of consistency. You want it to be clear that it's the same person who started the book as the one who ended it. I think often people actually have to go back and redraw the beginning, you know, just to match how the, what they've morphed into. I didn't really have time to do that. I should have. I wish I had more time to go back and work on this book, but nope, it's done. It's over. It's in the can. Yeah, at a certain point, you have to set something free. Yes. I assume that's a difficult process for you to just decide that this thing is finished and to push it out the door. Well, I really struggled with the ending of this book, which I write about in the book, <laughs> because I, I realized that, you know, ending, I was enjoying, I, I was struggling with the book, struggling with how to end it, struggling with trying to figure out what it was about. And I, I had an insight one day that I... I was really attached to this struggle, you know? Maybe I didn't really want the struggle to end. And then I realized that it was like life and that in my life, I'm kind of, I've kind of been attached to a certain degree of unhappiness, like a certain degree of familiar unhappiness that I know from my childhood, familiar in its most specific sense, the particular kind of unhappiness for my unhappy family. You know, it's very tempting to, hang on to that as you go through life just because you know it so well. And I realized I was kind of doing that with this book. I, It was easy to feel some suffering around it. And I was kind of just creating that drama for myself when really what I needed to do was commit to finishing the book. And it was like accepting the fact that I'm going to die. By not ending the book, I had this illusion that I, I wasn't going to end either. And somehow really... I feel like I made a little bit of progress in there toward accepting my own, the reality of my own death. I mean, I know I'm going to die, but we we all have to like assimilate that somehow in, in stages as we go through life. And that just helped me to finally end the book, just dig in and say, this is it. I'm writing this book. Here's where it ends. Bam. I guess not to put too fine a point on it, but in a way ending the book was an acceptance of mortality? Yes. I think that's true. I mean, to be fair, with everything I've ever written down to like the shortest little comic strip, endings are always hard. And I think in part because of their finality and their the way that they foreclose all other kinds of possibilities. That's always painful to say, well, I'm not going to use that idea or that idea or that idea. It's just going to go like this. You just have to constantly face that kind of (laughs) grief as you're creating or you'll never finish anything. I assume that in the work that you do with memoir, especially again, given the fact that these are three books that do revisit certain points in your life, that what you choose not to include in each one is almost as important as what you choose to include. It's funny because when I finish a book, I've always got some leftover stuff. And so far it goes into the next book. (laughs) That's the pattern. Like, Material that just I I felt a strong feeling about but couldn't fit gets carried over, like almost like a like those little numbers you write when you're adding numbers together remainders. But yeah, there's stuff I didn't get to in this book that I probably will somehow shove into the next one. This was the first 
book that you wrote after having both of your parents pass, I don't know, I assume that it's different to write a book about somebody who's still around and can potentially read the work. Did that, how profound an impact did that have on the creation of this book? You know, I noticed that more when I was writing my memoir about my mother while she was still alive, contrasted with writing Fun Home some years earlier about my father who had been dead for 20 years. It was absolutely much easier writing about my father than my mother, um, who actually was ill during the period of time I was writing about her, which made me feel quite a monster. Like, why was I subjecting her to being written about when she was already dealing with cancer? But I did. And I, I, I don't really regret it. I feel like it really brought me closer to her in a way that wouldn't have happened otherwise. But this book, my most recent book, which I was just beginning as my mother was dying, was kind of just a whole new realm of life. Like I, I had let go of my parents. I mean, I was still grieving my mother. And I think letting go of her was part of the process of writing this book. But they weren't, they weren't as they weren't factors in it in the same way. Obviously, a big part of Fun Home was your coming out story. And I think the way you described that was your dad almost stealing your thunder, you know, in that yeah. he was a part of that too. And, and because of that, in telling your own story, you're really telling his story. And this book about your mother was a book about your mother. Is this a book about you in a way that previous books haven't been? I think so. Yeah. I mean, my parents certainly loomed very large in my psyche. And I had to like sort of dispatch each of them. And in this book, I feel kind of free. Uh, I haven't really thought through this whole thing. I mean, I think both of my parents like had a hand in whatever my, my fundamental problem is, which is something to do with the self, something I have some kind of interruption in myself, some kind of a, a, not a flaw, but a way that my relationship to my own self has been problematic. I think because they both kind of colonized it in a way when I was a kid, like didn't let me just be my own spontaneous self as a child. Like that's why spontaneity is so important to me. My own spontaneity was very much impinged on. So yeah, they, I had a, a problem with myself coming, stemming from my relationship with my parents and now I'm, this this new book is about I mean all both of those books were about self and identity in pretty explicit ways. This book is about like getting beyond the self, getting beyond my particular identity. So I feel like it's definitely some kind of progression. The way it did manifest itself in this book though, it's very obvious the the role your parents play when it comes to your clothing choices. I mean that that to me is like the the moment where it's like really obvious where they're like getting on you for I guess, dressing like a boy, as they probably would have said at that point. Yeah. And that's the one place where it's sort of really clear where their, their presence really looms large is this this question of gender. That was a big thing as a little kid. But as I think about it now, you know, there were many other larger ways that they impinged on me. And certainly with my dad, like he just had so, he just had a whole agenda for me, what, what I was going to study, where I was going to go to grad school, like, so the you know, boys clothes thing was just like, just a, a small thing. I've been talking about this book nonstop for like, 
two months and I, I can't even remember what it's about. I was listening to another interview where you essentially told the interviewer that you had graduated from therapy. First of all, you know, and she was surprised that that even can happen. And I'm surprised to hear that too, even, you know, as a the child of a psychotherapist. Oh, interesting. What does that mean to, to graduate from therapy? And, and I guess sort of what role has that process of going to an analyst played in your creation of these books? I, 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 I might have used the term graduate, but I... Oh, I think I use graduate. I think, okay. I think that was my, my own choice. The technical term is even worse. It's terminate. I terminated. But I have to say it was after 19 years with this particular therapist... And before her, there had been a number of others. So I had been in therapy pretty much for 30 years of my adult life, which sounds crazy. Uh, <laughs> but it just became a part of my life. It was something I really needed, something that helped me repair that that self problem I was just trying so awkwardly to talk about. And I I really needed it. I, I You know... It was an important part of my life and important. I would always look forward to my sessions. And I, what I found in recent years was that I was not, that was not happening anymore. I was actually kind of looking at the clock, not thinking, oh my God, I only have 10 minutes left, but like, oh my God, what am I going to talk about for the next 10 minutes? It just was this sort of natural decathexis, you know, like a kid letting go of their stuffed animal, like it just finished. So interesting to sort of just sort of run out of material, because again, it sounds like when it comes to making books about your life, you very much have not run out of material. I worry about that. You know, I, I mean, the, the period of time when I first started work with this analyst who I'd been seeing for 19 years was so rich in um, just revelations like every week I'd have some new insight into myself and some new tangent of research it would take me on a lot of that is that I write about that in are you my mother but it was just a really exciting period of my mental life and I I don't have that stuff going on anymore I feel sort of like I miss it but uh maybe that's okay maybe I also feel like maybe one day I'm going to outgrow my need to document my own life so obsessively. I don't know what I'll do then. I'll have to get some kind of a job. This sort of loops back around to that conversation about knowing when you're finished with something and knowing when to, to send it out into the world. And obviously, the process of making comics has largely been solo for you, writing and drawing them. You know, I know this time you, you worked with Holly, who did the coloring, and that, that's a little bit different. But the math completely changes when you're talking about somebody adapting your work, whether it's a musical. I know that there's a, a film in the works as well. Is that a difficult process to just let somebody else pick pick up the ball and run with it? You know, no. I mean, I, I don't. I might feel differently about this film that's in the works if it were an adaptation of the book, but in fact, it's an adaptation of the musical. So I feel like there's a kind of remove from it that makes me feel like that's fine. You feel more distanced because there was uh, an intermediary? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's already not my work. It's someone's work about my work. <laughs> what was that process like for the musical then? You know, I, I had a nice connection with Lisa Crone, the playwright, even though I wasn't involved in any of the her thinking or decision-making, uh, I felt like she was kind of consulting me and listening to me throughout her process. And that somehow just felt good, like I was being included in some way. I didn't feel like I had just turned this stuff over and they were making of it what they would. I felt like I 
my feelings were being consulted all the way along. She was very respectful in that way. So I didn't really mind giving up control. I don't know how to explain it. I probably would have, I, I did feel differently about a movie, which was an art format I felt sort of was more similar, something I knew, like a musical just felt like another kind of... It's almost, it's almost so alien to yeah. the work that you do. Yeah. In that sense, I have to imagine that even in spite of that, it's got to be really surreal to see your childhood played out on, on a, on a Broadway stage or because of that remove, was it less of a surreal experience for you? No, it was absolutely surreal and I could never come up with a better word to describe it. And that, that is what it was. It was wonderful, but weird. 